0: Hey, this is Donald Copeland, former Seton Hall Pirate, current assistant coach at Wagner College, and you're listening to Left Coast Pirates.
1: to go, down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step
2: into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around it in. And a foul!
1: Whitehead ties the game! Pound from Triton. Woo! What Tritton makes, the world takes! From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego. California. He is Mike Dezery, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Welcome to this week's edition of Left Coast Pirates. Pirates, and I am emotionally drained. Four games in six days, Mike. I don't know what I was gonna do to get through tonight especially, but Mike, before I throw it to you, I want to address something here. A lot of people have said how critical we are. They keep calling us negative Nancys, but let me just remind everybody, no matter how critical we got last week or previous podcasts I want to remind everybody, we thought Seton Hall was going 3-1 and one this week. We thought they were going to go out there and knock off some big teams. So while we're critical, sometimes we're still wearing those blue tinted glasses. But Mike, this week, it didn't come easy, did it?
2: I mean, I think you're losing track of the narrative here. You're the one calling me glass half empty. I don't think everybody else is calling the podcast glass empty. You're cheery. You're rosy. You're rooting on the Pirates at the end of every podcast. I don't even know if you've predicted them to lose a game. I am the <laughs> I am the Eeyore. I, I think you're kind of just losing sight of our back and forth. But, I mean, I, I think you're lucky that we found a way to beat Penn State tonight because I don't know if I would have come on this episode in the right frame of mind. I mean, Tom – It's been a long week as you put it. And to be honest, I I, I'm running out of steam. So just do me a favor and play the clip that I asked you to pull from the Goodman and Hummel deal debate media podcast when they interviewed Willer over the summer. I think that's a good place to start
3: because, you know, I I built so much into, into getting, you know, miles to where I thought he deserved, which is in the NBA. Um, You know, I limited so much of the other guys, unfortunately, and this year, Um, I've already seen it in practice, you know, our ball movement is unbelievable. Uh, Guys are getting shots um, that they didn't get. And, you know, it's we're just able to play so much different. So I'm I'm really excited about this team. I think this is my best team we've had. Um, If we can, you know, I think we'll take some lumps early on in non-conference just because I I built it that way. Uh, But I like the way where this team could be come January, February.
2: All right, Tom. So, so I asked you to pick this clip because I thought it was a microcosm of kind of what went down in the first week that we played or this past week that we played here. Let's start. I got, I got three bullet points that I kind of want to go off on relative to this clip and kind of lead us into recapping this week. Number one, the ball movement is unbelievable. I got to get invited to one of these practices someday because you know what? It always sounds like we are a final four team in these practices it just blows my mind. It just gets the fan base. So pumped up. I'm juiced. I'm ready to rock and roll. Tom, the, the ball movement is fantastic. Just remember that number two lumps. Oh, we definitely took some of those, but what kind of lumps would we have taken if we actually played in the Charleston classic played against Rutgers and a number two, a Baylor in addition to URI and Penn state. I mean, he was making that comment relative to a loaded schedule. And then lastly, I can't wait to see Bryce Aiken take the court and be healthy. Because if this could be his best team ever, then oh my God, Aiken's got to be the the biggest difference maker in the world right now. Now I know what people are going to say to me, Tommy, that you, you can't go ahead and make these criticisms, Mike, because the team had to quarantine for two weeks right before the season started. And you don't have supposedly the second best player on the team in Bryce Aiken, things could or should be totally different otherwise. And those aren't completely wrong. It's only five games into the season. COVID-19 is already making the season chaos anyway. I, I get all that. So I'm not throwing the towel, not yet. But There's one observation that may be upset this week is that this team is not good enough to not play fundamental basketball. You can't just roll the balls out there and expect to beat an opponent that is coached well and play solid team basketball. Tommy, uh, we made it through this week. There's some good and bad, but, but I'm emotional,
1: man you're gonna have to hold me back this week <laughs> no Mike I'm gonna hold you back because there's gonna be one rule this week you're only gonna get one thought after every one of the games that we review but Mike I'll tell you what you mentioned something earlier you said I was lucky that we won this game I don't think I'm the only one that was lucky that we won this game there might have been pitchforks and torches walking down South Orange Avenue had we lost over there in Happy Valley but let's not put the cart in front of the horse here. Let's see what we're going to talk about on the podcast this week. We will review the wins against Iona and Penn State in addition to the losses at University of Rhode Island and Oregon. In Omaha, of all places, we look at the havoc COVID-19 continues to wreck across the college basketball landscape, and we take a quick preview of the next home game against Wagner. But first, Seton Hall 86, Iona 64. Iona surprisingly led 37-28 with 2.14 left in the first half. Kevin Willard called his second timeout in the span of 54 seconds, and after that, the hole went on a 57 to 18 run across the rest of the game before Iona narrowed the final margin in garbage time.
2: All right, Tommy, stats on this one Jared Roden, career high, 26 points, 10 rebounds. Sandro Mamukelejvili, 18 points, seven boards. Miles Kale sighting early in the season, 15 points. And Shavar Reynolds had a team high, eight assists and also drew an uncanny five offensive fouls. Team stats, the Pirates shot 55% from the field, had a total of 13 steals, that helped lead to 27 fast break points. Iona came out of the gate red hot from three, seven to 10 in the first half, and cooled off in the second half to a tune of two of 10, dropping the average to a still robust 45%. The turning point in this game, I think you kind of already mentioned it, Tom, it was that second timeout that Willard called in that span of 45 seconds late in the first half when the team was down by nine. I don't know what he said, but after that, they came out like gangbusters, cut the lead to two, and the second half was a completely different ball game. I don't know if it's once again, Willard and his chiropractic tendencies, or maybe just Iona was a little bit depleted and ran out of gas in the second half. Your thoughts?
1: Mike, I don't want to waste any time talking about this game. It's Iona. It's a team that Patino just took over. Two of their best players didn't play because they were hurt. There's nothing to talk about here, man. I told you they were going to beat the brakes off this team. I told you they were going to demolish them. What's there to talk about?
2: But that's not fair we, we get one thought and you're gonna take your one thought and throw it right out the window absolutely Roden, there's nothing to
1: talk about here
2: Jared Roden had a career high 26 points oh in
1: okay I'm gonna be impressed by uh, Jared Roden scoring 26 on Iona just like I was supposed to be impressed with Mamu scoring 17 against Sacred Heart Ooh, here we go
2: you just go to the well. You have this Mamu Sacred Heart thing that you just go to the well. Whenever you feel like you backed into a corner, Mamu Sacred Heart. This is not even about Mamu,
1: and you pick it on Mamu. Mamu me, what a game.
2: We're asking for Roden to step up and be that second leading scorer, uh, that third piece of the puzzle when Aiken comes back, potentially be an all biggies performer. And it has to happen on a night in and night out basis. And you want to see on certain nights that he's going to take over and have a bigger game. Yes, it's Iona. He should have better games against Iona. But it's still his career high. It's still a glimpse of what he, what he has. And it was nice to see. I didn't know that he was going to regress the next two games. So at that moment, I'm excited that he had a breakout 26-point effort.
1: You know, Mike, you said there was a turning point with that second timeout. Turning point, schmerning point in this game. Mike, it's called talent showed up. The guys finally said, This is not a good team, not the way it's constituted right now. Let's beat the hell out of them and move on.
2: It's, it's not even a team that was playing with their best players. Or weren't no. two of the best players out hurt? Or ineligible, whatever the situation was. Well,
1: even if they played, they it wouldn't. It shouldn't make a, a that much difference. This is Patino's first year with the team. If he stays further seasons and he starts recruiting, maybe that changes. This was not a good Iona team, and I don't want to hear it.
2: I'm just telling you right now. They got that return game next year. Mark it down. That's going to be a tough one for the Pirates. I didn't like this game. I didn't like how it played out. I'm happy they they kind of bounced back and got the win in the second half and stepped on their throats. But I'm telling you, I don't like the return game next year. Mark it down when you replay the podcast if we struggle in that that neutral site or road matchup. All right, let's
1: move on. Okay. Seton Hall afterwards had to go up north a bit and played University of Rhode Island. Rhode Island 76, Seton Hall 63. The Pirates came out sluggish again, digging a 14-point deficit nine minutes into the game, 23-9. The Pirates fought back to trail by one at the break, 36-35. The game went back and forth from there with 10 ties, but finished out with a 15-2 URI run that closed out the game.
2: Stats on this one, Tommy. Sandro with another solid performance, 25 points, 10 rebounds, four of eight from three. Jared Roden, 10.6 boards. He was the only other player in double figures for the Pirates on this night. Rhode Island, Fats Russell had 17 points and four steals. And Makai Mitchell, one of the twins, 11 points, 11 rebounds for his first career double-double. The team stats, Seton Hall struggled. And hurt themselves from the line 13 of 23. And Rhode Island had numerous advantages in the stat sheet. Seven turnovers compared to 14 for Seton Hall. They had an eight to one block advantage, and they only had 13 blocks in the first four games total. They had an eight to four steals advantage, and they were even on the boards where that is supposed to be a strength of Seton Hall. And to me, the turning point's pretty simple. After Jared Roden hit a dunk to tie the game at 61. Jeremy Shepard drills a contested three with, I think it was Roden that was all over him. And then we come back down the court and in the corner, Kale misses a wide open baseline three. After that, it kind of just took the life right out of the Pirates as they only scored two points over the final six minutes and eight seconds to play Leading to that fifteen to two run that you talked about.
1: Well, Mike, you know this is one of those games where the ball wasn't moving for much of the game. It seemed like everybody was trying to play hero ball, and then that's what happened toward the end of the game. We had the we fought back. We had this close game at the end of it, and then we couldn't get anything going, and we had bad shots from Sandra. We had bad shots from Tyrese. This is what happens when you don't have a real point guard out there running the offense. Now, I know... Wait a minute.
2: Wait a minute, Tommy. I've read everything that's out there right now. There's a huge (laughs) Javar Reynolds love fest going on. I mean, he had a a great game against uh, Oregon. He had a good game against Penn State. Watch your words here. Watch your
1: this words is here. where we. This is where it's going to be mixed up a little bit. Shavar is playing great. Shavars is playing way above his ceiling, in my opinion. But that still doesn't make him a point guard. A lot of people are going to look at his line and say, "Oh, he had this many assists. He had this many points." But what happened? At the end of that game, there was no cohesion in the offense. There was nothing moving. And yes, you know, Shavar did get his fourth foul. Uh, I want to say something like 10 minutes left in the second half or something like that. But he got back in for like the last five plus minutes. And there was nothing being run there. You're not running an offense. Your guys are taking bad shots. This is the kind of outcome you're going to get in throwing bad free throw shooting, and it's just disaster.
2: Well, if you remember that game, and I think this is what sticks out in a lot of fans' memory, is you have to call Molson bringing the ball up uh, in place of Shavar when he got his fourth foul. And on one of those sequences, uh, Thatch Russell was pressing him on the inbounds, and the minute he tried to make a move to bring the ball up court, he picked his pocket, Uh, Laid the ball up and in, and that kind of you know speared part of that run that we were talking about. So, you know that 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 moment kind of stands out. But Shavar came back in; the game was still close. And I'm with you. I I did not see a lot of cohesion on the offense. I saw the ball sticking. I saw a lot of guys going one on one. They really didn't have a plan. Normally, we kind of revert back to the pick and roll offense at that point. If one guy doesn't have an individual mismatch or one guy is having a monster game and you just saw the ball kind of stick outside the three point line and i kind of felt like at in that game in particular Shivar kind of bogged down the offense and when guys got the ball it was 10 seconds or less in the shot clock and they had nothing else to do but kind of chuck up a bad shot and those are the guys who get the criticism this guy who took the bad shot but you know not getting into our offensive set which i don't even know what it is was was kind of the detriment to the offense there
1: well, in all fairness to Shavar as well, you had a bunch of bad shots outside of that. I mean, that Tyrese three to top of the key early in the shot clock was just atrocious. Um, I mean, Sandro forced a few threes toward the, toward the end because he was so hot earlier. But, you know, there was nothing going on. You got to call a timeout. You got to call a set.
2: Sandro needed to get more touches, and he didn't. Uh, they're, they're still learning. They're still trying to figure it out. But, He did not have the offense run through him. I'm okay if he gets the ball in the post and he gets double-teamed. He can pass out of the post. We saw it at the end of the Louisville game. He knows how to get the ball moving. That creates the mismatch. He he did not get involved, or Kevin didn't get him involved, late in that URI game for essentially the last four minutes. Here's my one thought. I'm going to go in a different direction here. I'm going to go back to the beginning of the game. Rhode Island got off to a hot start. They made some shots, but they got some open looks, and and this is what kind of confused me. Did we really come out in a one-three-one zone to start that game?
1: Oh, I don't know, man. If I'm not mistaken, Bill Koch said that URI wasn't that good of a three-point shooting team, so I guess coach wanted to push him outside further. But I don't know that we've got the horses to run one-three-one. When have we ever run a one-three-one in the Kevin Willard regime? So here's my issue
2: with that. Oh, I, I gotta, I gotta keep it, stay in control here. We have never played zone well. And Kevin has complained that we have not had adequate practice time to put in certain sets. So you come out with a 1-3-1? One, one? When did he start practicing this?
1: In the hotel lobby? When did he start working on the 1-3-1, one, one, Tommy? Well, to his defense, it's not like we're playing man-to-man all that well either, Mike. You know, no,
2: that's, that's not fair. They play good man-to-man at the end of the Iona game. They play tough, gritty man-to-man against Louisville. Yes, they go through some stretches, but you're telling me You can't try to impose your will man-to-man against Rhode Island to come out of the gate. You got to get gimmicky. Maybe he
1: doesn't have the confidence in it, Mike. You just mentioned bits and pieces of good defense. When's the last time we saw a real good defensive performance? And yes, it could go back to practice, but sometimes you got to man up. To be honest with you, I wasn't impressed with the talent at Rhode Island. I mean, they were a decent enough team, but we shouldn't have had this trouble with them.
2: Nah, they're a mid-level A-10 team. Mid-level. I mean, they got some nice pieces. But, you know, it was interesting. That kid, that kid Leggett could play for a freshman, huh? It's oh, amazing right. how some he can kind of play <laughs> once in a while.
1: And uh, hey, Fats I, Russell I, was good, man. He was what was advertised, man. He was good.
2: I'm gonna I'm gonna monitor myself. One thought. You said one thought. Let's
1: move on to Oregon. Okay. Oh Oregon. This is gonna be the painful one here, Mike. Oregon eighty-three, Seton Hall seventy. Seton Hall opened the scoring on a Jared Roden dunk, assisted by Shavar Reynolds. That would be the only lead the Pirates would have for the entire game. Eight minutes in, Seton Hall found themselves down 9 15 6. They did rally to tie the game at 19 after eight straight points from Takal Molson, but Seton Hall would play from behind for the rest of the way. A traditional three point play from Tyrese Samuel cut the lead to six with 9 11 to play. Then, in an immediate 11 1 run by the Oregon Ducks, put the game out of reach
2: all right Tommy stats in this matchup Shavar Reynolds was the man for the Pirates career high 17 points on four or five from three-point range he also tied his career high with eight assists in a game-high 38 minutes four other players finished in double figures Tyrese, Kale, Roden, and Sandro all contributing but for the Ducks It was all about those old thorns in our side again. Eugene Omarui, game-high 22 points on an efficient 10 of 17. And LJ Figueroa, just made immediately eligible by the NCAA prior to the game. Six points, nine boards, two assists, and four steals. A little bit of everything all over the court. On the team stats, Seton Hall shot 14 of 24 from three-point range for a 54% clip. Pretty damn impressive for the Pirates, but they were out-rebounded 38-22 to on the glass, specifically 12-4 to on the offensive side. And they were marred by 17 turnovers, and they also allowed Oregon to shoot 53% for the game. To me, Tommy, the turning point in this one, the game is 46-41, 12-15 to play, and to call Molson, makes a drive all the way to the rim, and he misses the finger roll. Everyone crashed the glass for once! And he also misses the tip attempt. Oregon breaks out in transition, and Jalen Terry drills a, a three in the corner. Kale comes back down, and he answers with a jumper. But immediately, Chris Duarte drills another three to make the lead nine, and the Pirates never got closer than six ever again. You're pretty tough on tackle to me so far. That one hurt. I felt like he, he was right there to lay it in. Now it should have been a two-point game, and I'm talking, you, you didn't even blink. It's like 30 seconds later, and boom, they're down nine. And you just you felt like the wind was out of their sails at that point.
1: You know, you, you keep making this thing. I'm tough on Molson. I'm not. I like him. I just don't think he's going to be that immediate impact player that you're keeping Hosting him up to be, man. You keep thinking Q year two, and I'm telling you, he's playing Q year one this year. But regardless of that, Mike, I didn't like this game at all. I I don't know why we even scheduled this game. We had to travel, which meant we had no rest. We really didn't get a good practice in after the debacle up in Rhode Island. And Oregon was already on site for a game with Missouri, and Missouri blew their... Doors off now, Mike. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't the Ducks playing Missouri their first game? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Then and how did they immediately look like they were in midseason form against us? You don't want
2: you don't want to hear it. Yeah, I'm going to tell you that that Dana Altman completely outcoached Willard. That's I mean, everything that we were struggling with up until this this point in the season, he exploited. With his offense and spreading us out, making our bigs have to cover guys off the dribble. You know they had a hot player in Omar Rui who had 31 points against Missouri and 22 against us, and they kept on going to the hot end. the The ball didn't stick for them. That ball was moving around. And you know, you know what's the the craziest part about this? Their point guard got hurt against Missouri. Yes, for six weeks with thumb surgery, and it, they did not suffer at all. That that ball was. Moving as I said earlier, so th- there was a lot of things that they did really, really well. They looked like they were—I wouldn't say midseason for him but there was just there was a cohesion, like you said, for a team who had only played their second game of the season. And conversely, everybody knows Sandra Zorgati, at least at this point, right? Sandra had two really good games in the season. He's obviously the focal point of her offense. Everything in the write-ups is like, ah, you got to get Sandra the ball down the stretch. You can't have what happened in the URI game happen again where he goes silent in the last four minutes and Dana allman in his post game flat out comes out and says our job defensively was to make sandro not touch the ball as often as possible our focal point was slowing him down and making the other guys beat us i think i think Willa got out coached this one Another you,
1: you know I, I joked around last year when i said willard had one job the previous summer and that was figuring out ways to get miles powell the ball and have him shoot from good positions and and to go along with that joke he actually had one job this summer and that was to figure out how best can i get sandro involved in this offense it's it's a sin it's criminal that he only took seven shots for the game i, th- I mean it's ludicrous how do you not get him involved? He's your best player. He's the best power forward in the country. How do you not get your best player to ball?
2: Carmelo Malone would not have been happy with only seven shots. Let me just say that. <laughs> Here's the issue. It's not that he just got only seven shots. Four other guys on the roster took more shots than him. And you know what? If he got the seven shots in the post, I'd be okay with that. But he didn't really get... Any touches in the post, that's where his offense needs to start. He has the ability to create off the dribble. He's super athletic for being 6'11". It's pretty impressive, but he's has a mismatch down on the block, and we didn't exploit that. As we said, you know, their goal, Oregon, was to shadow him and use that matchup zone to kind of take him out of his element. Willard has to find a way to get his star player the, the ball. My issue with Sandro is this. You have to understand how to use him in the construct of an offensive system. Sandro is not that star player where you can just give him the ball, clear out and say, go do your thing yet. Yes. From time to time, you can get away with that, but you've already complained to me numerous times on text as we're watching the game. That's it. That's the fifth offensive charge for Sandro. When we're only like, you know, five, five games into the season, it's got to stop. He doesn't know how to kind of jump stop in the paint hit that little, you know, seven foot jump shot, or then dish it down. They see him coming. He's kind of out of control way too often. But I can't beat up Sandro for what he did. People were like, Sandro shied away from the moment. He had four assists for the game. He should have had seven. How many times did he have a nice assist and a dunk was missed? I counted three. You had to play that Kale went up strong and got fouled, but Kale's got to put that home. You had the play to Tyrese. And in the first half, you have that hideous play where it's a 4-on-1 fast break and Jared uh, Roden back rims the dunk. Seven assists from your big guy changes the dynamic of the game if you continually use him as your focal point. And they didn't do that.
1: And and, and to be fair to the Pirates, Oregon's going to be a really good team going forward. I mean, you already saw in the second game of their season, LJ Figueroa's first game, and he fit in there like a glove. Like a glove. It's like he'd been playing with that team forever. They're a really good team. But, Mike, what upset me the most isn't losing to a team like Oregon in the big picture because they are that good. What improvement did we see over these first four games? It didn't seem like we were getting any better in any one facet of the game. It's not like our offense was flowing better. It's not like we were playing defense tougher. It's not like we were boarding a little better. It's just there was no improvement. And by this point, you should see something, no? Well,
2: that's why I want to go back to your original one thought for this game, which is why did we play it? I understand Willard's trying to test his team. I understand that he's trying to get as many games in due to COVID because you just don't know. And, hey, he's trying to get a resume-building win. I I thought it at first was a little bit coy. Hey, you have Oregon, who hasn't really played any games yet this year. They are going to be a good team this year. Maybe you catch them without Figueroa. They actually caught them without their point guard. Maybe you get a top 25 victory and you pad the resume. After the way they've melted down in the last five minutes against Rhode Island, they really needed – a day off. They needed to go home, catch their breath, get a practice underneath them, not go through some more rigorous travel. You know, if they played Oregon at home or if they played Oregon in like a bus ride to Mohegan Sun or something, maybe I'd be okay with this. They had to get on a plane, to travel to Omaha, and you said this to me numerous times. They are playing an NBA-type schedule this week, and that's just not right to the kids. And I don't think as often as they play games and they're young and they're, they're vibrant and they have the energy, the travel does wear on you it just does
1: and let me break the rule I did say we were only going to get one thought per game but let me go back to Sancho for one second after the URI game Willard actually comes out and says he doesn't think that Sancho played all that well we're talking about a 25 and 10 game did he play well down the stretch you know last five minutes no not particularly there were a few shots that he forced but 25 and 10, he I mean he was a stud against URI, let's not fool ourselves. He had that one spin move that he finished with the right around one of the Mitchell twins that was just like, "Oh damn, that's a real big." Save
2: it. We got a segment for that. We got yeah, a let segment. Let
1: me finish, let me finish. But did Willard get into Sandro's head the next game? I
2: I don't know. I I, I he has to know what buttons to push for his players. And you read a lot of post game where like, well, Willard was trying to steal one out of the playbook of Rick Pitino because Rick Pitino beat up his Iona player who had the best game for the, for the Gales in the post game after the Seton Hall loss. So, you know, maybe Willard was trying to steal one from his mentor. I don't know. If if that's what it takes to light a fire under Sandro and say, Hey, you had a great game, but I need you to be more efficient, you know, in certain spots. And that made him shy away. I
1: I don't know. I I really don't know. Let's move on to the next game. A fourth game in six nights. And if we would have lost this game earlier today, we would have been podcasting angry. Seton Hall, 98. Penn State 92 in overtime. Penn State came out smoking hot, making seven of their first ten three-point attempts, taking a 29-10 lead. The Hall fought back and cut the lead to 45-34 at half after Takal Molson hit a traditional three-point play. They came out in the second half with great energy and a 22-8 to run, which let them take a three-point lead. The game was tied at 71 after Sandro hit a three-pointer. After that, Penn State took an 11-3 to run to put them up eight. But the Hall fought back with an eight-zero run of their own to push it into overtime. Penn State and the Pirates exchanged buckets for most of the OT until Shavar Reynolds hit the go-ahead three with 45 seconds left, and that was all she wrote.
2: I can't stop laughing. Every time you say, don't podcast angry, all I can think about is Bill Murray, that stupid groundhog, driving the pickup truck in Groundhog Day, man but it's so true, man. Don't podcast angry. Don't um, drive angry. I,
1: I am glad I'm here to amuse you, Mike. At least some happiness comes out of it.
2: All right. Let me try to get it together for the stats. here. All right, Individual stats. When you have an overtime game that has 98, 92 in total points, there's going to be a lot of them. So Sandro, my boy, bouncing back at 30 points, 10 of 19 from the floor, career high, five rebounds, four assists, None more important than the one that you just mentioned to Shavar Reynolds to take the lead in overtime. Jared Roden, 15 points and eight boards. Miles Cale, 16 points and three crucial steals that helped ignite second half runs. And Shavar Reynolds with overall steady play, 10 points, seven assists, five rebounds. He did have four turnovers, however, but overall played a good game. Six players in double figures. And on the other side for Penn State, Seth Lundy, 23 points, 9 of 16 from the floor, 7 boards. Myron Jones, 17 points. Miles Dredd, 14 points, 5 rebounds, 4 of 5 from 3. He had the assignment on Sandro defensively. was slowed him down for the most part until Sandro took over late. The team stats, rebounds. Penn State, 40. Seton Hall, 36. Kind of disappointing again, but in overtime, Seton Hall held the edge, 8-3, to three, which kind of turned the tide for their decisive final margin. Seton Hall almost gave it away with 23 of tw- 35 from the free throw line, another game where they shot poorly from the free throw line. Three-point shooting, Penn State came out smoking, as you mentioned. 7 of 10 to start, just like Iona did a couple nights before. But for the rest of the game, 6 of 24, only 25%. Overall, Seton Hall shot 53% from the floor and a robust 66% on two-point shots. The turning point, Tommy, I think we've already said it a couple times now, Mamu's pass to Shavar for the go-ahead basket, a three-pointer, 45 seconds to play in OT, put the Pirates up 93-91, and they never looked back.
1: Well, Mike, you know, last week when we were previewing these games, I made a point of this game in particular, and I said, you know what? I can see the Pirates losing this game for only the fact that they were going to come in tired. It was going to be their fourth game in six nights, traveling, flying everywhere, man. This is tiring, man. They didn't have a day off in between. It was play, travel, play, travel, play. It showed out there. I mean, Penn State is not a good team. I don't care how they shot out there. I don't care how good Sam Sessions looked. I know you didn't mention him in the final stats, but Sam Sessions looked good. But this is a team that was picked to finish 10th in the Big Ten, and we gave up 84 points in regulation. The team was dog-tired, and it was a valiant, valiant comeback in that second half.
2: You're killing me because these podcasts run long and I don't get Sam session stats in. Why? Because he played for Binghamton with, with, with friend of the podcast, Lavelle Sanders? Lavelle, I mean, Lavelle. Oh, jeez. No, Sam, Sam played a good game. I was, I was kind of impressed. I was kind of impressed by a lot of guys from Penn State. But you're right. Penn State's not a good team. They're not a good team. We seem to make other players on other teams look unworldly sometimes with the way that we play defense. But, but let me say this, here's my one thought. They did get down 19, Tom, 19. Normally you're in your fourth game in six nights and you're probably going to pack it in at that point. You know, you put your head down you go back to the, the huddle, you look at around who's going to step up and, and that's a good chance to pack it in, get on the bus, get on the plane, whatever they're doing to travel and go home. And I, I don't know, rest up for Wagner, but they didn't, but they didn't. They fought. And I like the fact that they fought, right? That that's one of like the hallmarks of a Kevin Willard team is all the other deficiencies. You have never, they, you never lack their heart. Yes. They come out with slow starts all the time. They never lack heart or effort on the court uh, for a full 40 minutes. I've never seen them kind of get run out of the building and just completely give up outside of a, a couple efforts in Kevin Willard's tenure. And they definitely got tested, right? They, they got, they got pushed around in this non-conference. You know, there were, there were no cupcake walkthroughs outside of the Iona game. And you hope that games like this are going to teach them how to win consistently down the stretch and close contests. Yeah. I'm, I'm not impressed with the team Louisville put out there. I, I think URI is a little overhyped. This Penn state's team's not good, but they played competitive games and tightly contested battles and, and you should get something from that. Right. I also think that you saw a progression of what they need to do to close out games. In this game against Penn State, I think they learned that Sandro is the man and that they have to find a way to play through him, which they didn't do against URI in Oregon. But I'm with you. This Penn State team is not that good. They're they're just not. And they had to rally down 19 to essentially save the non-conference from becoming an utter and complete failure.
1: Oh, we would have been apocalyptic right now if they had lost that Penn State game. And, you know, they didn't look... In the first half, I thought they were going to go get blown out by 40. I mean, that's how pathetic they looked here. But I'm surprised you didn't bring up how well they came back in the second half with the unit they did. A lot of that comeback was with Kale, Molson, and Roden being kind of that three-guard lineup with Mamu and uh, Mamu and Ike in the back. I mean, they were really pressing hard.
2: But what you notice is throughout most of overtime and even down the final couple minutes, Ike I wasn't in the game either. They went Shavar, Kale, Roden, Molson, and Sandro. Sandro played the five, and they went super small. You know, now Roden and... And uh, Molson has some nice size. I mean, Roden's 6'6", he, he can board. Molson's, you know, 6'5". He, he likes to kind of mix it up, so you can kind of get away with it. But, geez, if they play any kind of team with size, I, I don't know. Can we dictate play with our four-guard lineup like other people have done it to us? I, I don't know. It worked tonight, though.
1: It really did. So, we were, we've gone through these games. I want to see if we can come up with some sort of collective thoughts around this crazy six-day week.
2: All right. So, so, so before we head into that, let me, let me set the stage with this. I heard someone say that if Seton Hall beat Penn State and then comes back and takes care of business against Wagner, that's three, three and three. With everything that we're going to talk about in this collective thought section, this person was saying they're in great shape. Let's start there. Are the Pirates in great shape after they come out with the win tonight against Penn State?
1: I don't know if you could say great shape if they came out three and one in this week, like we talked about last week. I mean, the hell you were even saying there's an outside shot of going four and zero, oh, and I just kind of let that, let, I let that go by this wayside I, a little I, bit and I, said, I did, okay, okay. My, my Mike's really going into that happy mode right now, but no, I don't know that we're good. We're in any sort of great shape right now. So we say we finish up the deal with Wagner and we go three and three. The Big East is going to cannibalize itself like it does every year. We're picked fifth in a coach's preseason poll, which means we're probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of, I don't know, 11 and nine, 10 and 10 possibly. And that basically puts us at a 13 and 13 record basically. And I don't know that that gets us anywhere.
2: Do you put any credence into, you know, what Jerry Carino is hyping up where he's like, I'll just throw out the non-conference. You know, you played six games, pretend they didn't happen. They're all like glorified exhibitions. COVID's rampant. We're just going to focus on the, the Big East records. And that's what the NCAA committee is going to do. They're going to look at the back end of your schedule when things have settled down. Here's my concern. I don't think things are going to settle down. We're going to do the pandemic paranoia or pandemonium section later on. And I don't see how the pauses don't continue, how the conference games don't get canceled or postponed, or there's an imbalance of games within the conference. So if Seton Hall had gone two and four, one and five, or they didn't even get really that marquee win in their non-conference, how do you really just throw that out completely and say that the committee is just not going to look at that whatsoever so so Marquette beats number four Ohio State Ah, forget about that one that one don't count
1: I'm confused let's look at the history over the past few years and I don't have the exact record so you'll have to bear with me you know last year we went 13 and 5 and had a three-way tie for first place for the Big East but I don't see that happening this year I mean we're just not constituted in that way to to get that kind of record but the previous four years, if I'm not wrong, we finished third place each of those years. And we're always around that 11-7, and 10-8 mark. You know, you add 3-3 three and three to that, that doesn't get you anywhere this year, I don't think.
2: That the hard part about that is, you know, what kind of wins are you going to get within the Big East? We're seeing kind of a lot of up and down play from the Big East so far. You know, Xavier had a nice win against Cincinnati today and they're undefeated, but they've struggled in a lot of their games against mid-major opponents. Uh, you have Providence who's really struggled so far. You have the poll hasn't even really played anybody due to COVID pauses. Villanova kind of got knocked off early. So where is the Big East outside of that Marquette win that I just described, kind of building up the conference's resume where you can sit there and say, hey, look, if you go through a gauntlet of a Big East schedule and they actually play 20 games and they go 11-9, and 9, that 11-9 and 9 on its own stands out. If the Big East doesn't have a strong non-conference, right? You, you saw Georgetown lose to Navy. So if, if we rack up two Georgetown wins – are you going to tell me that that's something to hang our hat on? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just not buying it. And, and you're not wrong. Their, their record outside of the 13 and five in the previous seasons 18 19 campaign, nine and nine, 17 18 season, 10 and eight, 16 17 season, 10 and eight. And then you had the, white, the Whitehead breakout year where they went 12 and six. Besides the 13 and five and the 12 and six, you're right. They were borderline 500. And I know they finished in third place each one of those seasons. So it kind of got lost in the shuffle that a loss or two in any one of those tight battles that they had in those three seasons, they're somewhere between seventh or eighth. If they finish seventh or eighth in the Big East this year, are they getting into the tournament?
1: And Mike continuing on with that outside of the second half in Penn state, what have we really seen so far? Have we really seen anything that we can say oh yeah, this is what they built, this is what they've learned, this is how they've gotten better, the Big East schedule is going to be a lot better than what we've seen.
2: Yes, I'm going to give you something positive because I said this earlier, I'm going to come back to it again. I have never questioned the effort of a Kevin Willard team. We picked on them for coaching. We picked on them for quotes, but I've never questioned the effort of a Kemper Mueller team. And I said this before: yes, they've had some games where they've come out of the gate really slow. That's—I don't know if it's a coaching thing, I don't know if it's a pre-game motivation thing—but they haven't come out of the gate strong in, in a bunch of games. But they've never given up in any of those games. They've never given up in any of those seasons where most people have written them off. I mean, there's a reason why you called it the miracle at the Rock when they won the Marquette and Villanova games. We had them all but buried for dead that year, right? Rebuilding season, ah, they surprised us. Ah, they crapped the bed. They're done. And out from the ashes, they rise up. The Delgado senior season, they struggle, right? And then they have to rally the troops to get back to the NCAA tournament. And, And, you know, they probably shouldn't have been an eight seed, but that team rallied. The Madison Jones team, where Delgado, Casey, and Desi were juniors, that team had to find its footing and were three and six in the Big East to get things started and they rally back. Every time we doubt this team, they have risen from some type of adversity and been very, very gritty. So, so far, let, let's go through the initial games. Slow starts for sure, right? But Louisville down 11, they tied or took the lead. Iona down nine, they came back and won. URI, they came back to tie or take the lead. And Penn State, they came back to one to win, down by 19. So that's three times double-digit deficits – almost a fourth against Iona that they've rallied to even or take the leading games. That that's gotta be a positive,
1: right? It is a positive. It shows their metal, but it also shows the problems that they have on offense. Now, Mike, I know we don't have our full, uh, we don't have our full team yet, but is it Bryce Aiken is Bryce Aiken really the answer that's going to change everything. It's going to be the salve that, that heals all wounds Or is it the fact that we really don't run much of an offensive system here?
2: What do you want? You want the glass half empty? (laughs) What do you you want the glass half full answer? Because there's there's two ways to approach it. Now, Bryce
1: is a different type of player than, say, Shavar. He's quicker. He's going to get into the paint on his own more. He's going to create a little more, even though Shavar did a real nice job this week slashing toward the basket, making passes. But... Is it really going to be this much of a difference?
2: Right, so so let's go let's go positive, and then let's go you know opportunity. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of fans that still hold out hope, me included, that Bryce Aiken is a complete game changer. You saw it for the first couple minutes against Louisville. You see it in the highlight tapes. And hey, look, you have to also go into all the hype. It's not just coach. All the prognosticators across the country have talked about Bryce's game and what he can do to kind of help Seton Hall reload instead of rebuild. So we haven't gotten a chance to even see it yet. So there's the the hope that if he comes in and infuses that energy and that talent, that everything else starts to fall in place. So until he starts playing a consistent stretch and is not effective, yeah, the the people are going to hold out hope that when he comes in, that the sky could be the limit or that there's another level to this team. The other positive that we really haven't talked about is sometimes other players can get better or grow in the absence of a player who's injured by having to step up and fill a role. We talked about it last year, like, you know, Anthony Nelson had that opportunity against Maryland and Q all of a sudden kind of came out of his shell and became this, you know, unquestioned leader of the team all of a sudden. You know, we, we know he was a vocal leader, but his game developed to a, an, an on-court leader in terms of I can take the big shot again. I think Sandro learned a lot in this stretch of games where they know that the ball is going to go to him down the stretch if it's not Bryce Aiken. And and maybe I'm wrong here. I didn't think Shavar could play backup point guard. I thought we were going to have to really kind of develop Jahari Long and get him more involved in the game plan. Shavar, if you tell me, is going to play 10 to 15 minutes of backup point guard to lighten the load for Aiken, how do you feel about Shavar? And then also, how do you feel about Shavar doing the things that he has done as your backup two guard?
1: Uh, you know, well, he, for one, he's not going to be the backup two guard at that point. I think, I think between Teal and Molson, I, I I don't think it's gonna. He's going to get a whole lot of minutes there. He's gonna be the backup point guard at this point. I think
2: you're wrong i think I, he's gonna play a lot I where's he what, was he gonna
1: take minutes from your boy molson Oh, okay all right
2: molson can play some backup three so molson's gonna play some three he's gonna play some two he's gonna find ways to get shavar on the court you say he likes to play favorites well whether that's true or not shavar is clearly in the favor of kevin willard and his performance over the last two games and collectively
1: has earned him that right I'm not saying he doesn't deserve time I just think it's gonna be more a point even when Bryce Aiken comes back I don't I think they're I think that twisted ankle is gonna freak out coach and the staff and I don't know that he's gonna get a whole lot of minutes I mean you might see something like 22 minutes and 18 minutes kind of sl- that kind of slash line right there I don't know man I think that ankle is gonna freak them out
2: so you get to be the bad guy now well, give, give me the other half. Let's talk about it because it's it's out there. When, When the team goes through these offensive lulls and the lack of cohesion where the ball's not moving or, as Kevin said, the ball was sticking, people come back and say, hey, look, I don't know if it's fair or not anymore, but Kevin hasn't had a standard offensive system for the entire time as his tenure as Seton Hall coach. And like you said, the pits forks and the torches start coming out of the woodshed. Tommy, I had the Christmas lights that I was hanging this weekend and I found mine. I had it ready. It was was right there on the, it went from the inside of the shed to the side of the shed. I mean, the fans have it because Kevin has, you know, this baggage that he brings with him. And one of those issues is he doesn't have a motion offense or he doesn't have a high, low offense. He just, he doesn't have that system where you take certain players and year after year you integrate them as moving pieces in and out of that offensive scheme. Now, you could have a Whitehead, a Casey, a Delgado, all these guys, a Miles Powell, and say, you know what? I have my system, but when I have a superstar, in addition to my system, I'm getting my guy the ball. They don't have that uber superstar. People might argue and say that's Sandro, or maybe it's Bryce, but they really don't have that uber superstar where you can give them the ball, get out of my way, and let me do my own thing. So that lack of a system is showing, is Kevin Willard getting proper heat for what you saw in these droughts?
1: Oh, well, Mike, it's again, it's almost like a joke. It's almost a drinking game at this point. You know, it's not a season until you see the weave. And outside of the weave, what do we see? We don't. It's Kevin likes getting his best players the ball and have them do something. Well, but you can't do the same kind of offense you did with Miles that you're going to do with Sandro. You can't start Sandro at the top of the key every time and think he's going to make a play for you or something because you've seen it over and over that just it's just not a way to win basketball games. But Mike, we've
2: said he was going to play Sandra from the high post in some of his preseason stuff. Have you seen Sandra play from the high post yet?
1: You know, you know what? We're beating the dog. It's like we lost to Penn State. One final thought that comes from all four of these games is that a Kevin Willard defensive team is not good. When's the last time we really said that? I mean, Mike, they just look plain disorganized on defense. I mean, we've never been a team that boxes out well. Come on. It, it's just we were living on Angel grabbing every rebound known to man. But outside of that, we were not a team that boxed Bobby, out well. Bobby, I still have
2: nightmares of Jason Hart coming over the top yeah. of Desi Rodriguez at the Garden to win that semifinal Big East game. Oh, we yeah. had that one. You know, no. out,
1: but outside of that, we're leaving wide open threes for folks. They're getting wide open layups. Our defenders are leaving their feet. Every single one of our defenders, whether they're shot blockers or they're not shot blockers, are living their feet. We're getting killed by dribble penetration. And even Coach says he he's thinking he's switching too much on things. You know, he's which is leading to bad matchups for our team. So it's not just been offense. And again, some of this was worked out a little bit in the second half of this Penn State game but we still gave up 84 points in regulation to Penn State.
2: I said it at the top of the show with my monologue. I said this team cannot play without fundamentals. The defense, Tom, is all about fundamentals, boxing out, moving your feet, understanding how to kind of communicate on switches, everything that you just mentioned. It's fundamentals. So Kevin's going to have an out because he's going to say, hey, the pause hurt us. We didn't get the practice time in. We haven't had a chance to go back, watch the film, and then implement, you know, uh, adjustments in practice after these games this week. So he has his built-in excuses lined up, but there are just certain skill sets that are not being shown by the players. You're seeing a lot of reaching. You're seeing a lot of guys trying to tip the ball for a rebound. They're just not doing the basic fundamentals. And against better talent? Jeez, against better talent? Penn State scored 90-something, 92! Like you said, 84 in regulation, 92 in overtime. Oregon got whatever they wanted. The better competition that we are going to play, those fundamentals are going to get exposed. I am really afraid of playing Villanova this year.
1: Let's not put the cart in front of the horse, Mike. Let's get through DePaul first, okay? If We're talking about Biggie's schedules here. Again, Mike, we sound like we're being real Debbie Downers here, but there were a lot of good plays this week that made us say, whoa. So, Mike, I'm going to ask you first. What was the first thing that made you say, whoa, did you see that? I don't know what you have on your
2: list, but I only got two on mine. I have the Tyrese alley giving give and go uh, with Shavar during the Iona game. It was part of a seven straight uh, point scoring run by Tyrese by himself. And then I also had, you talked about it earlier, Sandro had that spin move where he basically was driving with his left spins and then switches back to his right for the finish. Against Rhode Island, that was that was pretty sweet. I, that's all I got. I'll let you pick between those two, unless you want to throw in another candidate. For the pick- you
1: know, Tyrese had another alley oop that wasn't as spectacular as the first one, but I'll go with the Sandro move because it just seemed a little more skill rather than just athletic uh, ability at that point. That move where he spun and then switched back—that was that was a pretty move. That's the kind of move that gets you drafted. Oh my. God, we're there again. Oh, my goodness. Anyhow. Announcers were saying it. The
2: announcers were saying it. Oh,
1: man. You're just doing a huge mic flop here. Speaking of mic flops,
2: we're going to introduce, for like the fifth time, a new name to this segment, and we're going to give credit to Mike Gallucci out there on Twitter. We asked for recommendations, and this one was great. We are now going to name this segment Mic Flops and Drops. Most of the time, it's flops. But Mike makes a good point. Just in case there is the occasional good job done by the announcer, we reserve the right to highlight something good. I have to admit, it was a pleasure getting to hear Jim Sprenarkle on one of the games this week, but the rest was just a mishmash of just some horrendous commentary, Tom. So uh, I'll let you go first.
1: Well, Scott Graham was calling the Iona game, and he was talking about how – Iona coaches historically have moved up the ranks And taken over bigger uh, and better programs And so then he started naming some of them And he named some really big coaches He talked about the famous Jim Valvano Who won a uh, NCAA uh, title down at NC State
2: You really need to start explaining to the audience who Jim Galvano is. Really that old?
1: That Are you really Balvan- that old, old? At this point, they probably just say, oh, the Jimmy V guy. I got gotcha. you. Well, Pat Kennedy, he had some real good teams down at FSU. Uh, Kevin Willard, obviously. But he also put a, put in Tim Welsh's name in the big time category, which it, it's a bit of a stretch. No, no, don't, don't insult the Providence
2: fans. It was the fact that, that he called him a big-time coach. He didn't say that Providence was big-time. No, but, they, but they, not all... every coach
1: that coaches in a big-time program is big-time. Tim Welsh is not big-time. Right. I'm sorry.
2: Okay, moving on. Here's another coach that coached the Big that I'm not putting in the big-time category whatsoever. Steve Lapis, formerly of Villanova, was doing the color commentating, and he basically said at the end of the URI game, That no matter who wins this game, this is going to be a quad one victory. You know me, Tommy. I love the net. I love breaking down the analytics. And I was losing it when I heard Steve throw out this stat. I'm sorry, but a home win is a quad one win if you beat a team that finishes in the top 30 of the net. First of all, at that point in the season, there is no net ranking yet. They don't put it out for a couple weeks. So there is no baseline for him to tell you you know, that Seton Hall or URI or meet the qualification for a quad one win. On top of that, after Seton Hall loses, they're ranked 53rd in the Ken Palm rankings at this point because that's all we got to go by. There's no way Seton Hall qualifies as a quad one win for the University of Rhode Island. I'm sorry, Steve, I got to call you out. Know the analytics before you just spewing stuff out there to sound good and make it sound like the finish of this game is so important. Oh, okay, I'm 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 gonna dial it back down. <laughs> there was one more. It was on tonight's game. Dave Repson's doing the play-by-play, uh, and he basically says that Ike Obiagu had just picked up his foul, and he goes, "That is the second foul on the Seton Hall star." <laughs> I get it. I get it. He scored six points to start the game for the Pirates. He looked like he was unstoppable. But, Dave, you haven't watched the Seton Hall game yet this year.
1: Uh, you know what, man? It was it was a game that was on the Big Ten Network. And, man, I'll tell you, every time I listen to a game on that network, it's just like nails on a chalkboard, Mike. I never enjoy myself there. It, it's just it's like they don't have a thought in their head.
2: And speaking of thoughts, Tommy.
1: (laughs) Now we're going to go back to our favorite section of the podcast, which is...
0: And now, Deep Thoughts. With
2: Kevin Willard. All right, Tom, let's let's go into this. There's so many quotes over the course of four games, but I want to kind of create a kind of collection and focus in on one core theme from the different quotes that kind of Kevin brought to not only his post game but to his pregame show. So here, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to kind of set the stage. I'll tell you what the quote was focused about. You're going to play it. We'll kind of go through all three of them, and then we'll kind of recap and kind of give us give you the takeaway, because I think they all tied into each other. So the first one is from the URI post game. Kevin is talking with uh, Gary Cohen and Dave Popkin and basically pop asked him about you know his ability to kind of get Jahari into the rotation.
3: He's working hard and you know practice, you know we we practiced yesterday and he was great. And I just think it's mentally I got to I got to somehow wake him up mentally. Um, and it's it's going to be hard. I, uh, and I got th- I got to show a little more trust in him. like I get I got to get him out there. Uh, I got to let him play through mistakes. That's on me, but you know.
2: All right, so th- so then after, then Kevin comes but we're we're setting the stage that he's got to get long more into the action here. So he comes on for the Oregon pregame, and says the following.
0: Yeah, I think it's the big thing is that, you know, trying to get uh, to call out there with him a little bit. Um, you know, I'm, I think I'm, I might try to play uh, Jahari Shabar together tonight um, to try to give Jahari a little confidence that there's someone else out there to handle the basketball. Maybe get maybe get you know Shabar, who I, you know is one of our better shooters, especially spot up shooters. Uh, maybe get him some shots uh, off the ball. Uh, but I think, you know, until we get Bryce back, unfortunately, you know, Shavar understands that he's got a heavy load and, you know, I, I have a lot of confidence that he can pro- keep progressing in the right direction.
2: So now I'm excited, Tom, you know, we're, we're heading into this Oregon game. And I think that we're going to see some more Jahari Long. He's going to let him let me work through some of his issues that he didn't let him work through in the URI game. And then we get to the Oregon post game after he posts another one minute of play. Yeah, I, I, I gotta,
0: I gotta get him in there. Um, you know, it, I'm definitely going to make the conserve effort. You know, on Sunday, you know, to get him in there um, was just, you know, it was such a nick, uh, such a close game, most of the game that, you know, I didn't want to. You're so nervous about putting a freshman in there, um, and you know him not doing well and, and hurting his confidence. But, um, you know, again, with Has Horacio playing as much as he's given it to us, um, he, I got to give him some breaks So I'm going to wear him out.
2: I don't even know where to start. I, I really don't. This is kind of, this is my issue with Kevin and his post game. And now I know he had plenty of quotes spread out over the four games and we are nitpicking down to these three, but part of this offensive struggle that we're going through has been always tied to the lack of cohesion and lack of a true point guard on the floor. So year after year, we are just hoping that the next freshman that comes on board that has that point guard mentality, or is a true point guard, will be that light at the end of the tunnel, will be the future captain of the ship running us running the point and getting that offense to click on all cylinders. And we were hoping that Jahari Long was going to be that guy this year and develop, and he played Tom, one minute in the URI game, one minute in the Oregon game, one minute against Penn State after he told you he was going to get him back in there. He did the Anthony Nelson. I make one bad pass and gets yo-yoed right out of the game against you or I. Are you not seeing a pattern develop with Jahari Long that we've seen over the previous years,
1: Mike? This is the same old song we were singing the last two years. I mean, this is nothing new. This is the same old, uh, this is the same old chit chat that we got from Willard last year about Anthony Nelson. Yes. Now, now to be fair. I don't know that Jahari Long is ready for the big time moment. I don't think I don't think Jahari Long is in the best shape. Not not making any kind of judgments here. He just looks a step slow, you know, potentially that quarantine hurt him uh, heard him from getting into the next level I don't know how much he played last his last season of high school so who knows where he's at from a physical standpoint but yes coach just just say you know what jahari's not ready yet we're building him up and we'll get him in there when he's ready but you know this same old song that he Go, thinks he wants that he thinks people want to hear it just it's enough enough it goes back to the Torian Thompson stuff you remember? Sandro goes down with the injury. Oh, I,
2: this is a great opportunity for me to get Torian some run. I'm, I'm going to have to see what we have for him. How many minutes did Torian get in last year <laughs> after Sandro went down and coaches like, yo, he's going to be out for six weeks. I got to figure something out. Torian, this is definitely a Torian spot here. And everybody went nuts.
1: We're like, Torian's going to play, baby. Yeah, Torian literally played one game last year for four minutes, and he was the biggest ovation you've ever heard. But, you know, I mean, it's just the same old song, man. You know, we just got to get past it.
2: Don't say it then. That's my issue. Stick to the facts. Keep it vague. Give me coach speak for you want. Don't get the fan base riled up and, oh, this is going to happen. And then once again, you come nowhere even in the ballpark. This is not even like out in left field. You were like out in the parking lot and you don't even have a ticket to get into the stadium. I, I'm I'm sorry, it just,
1: it drives me nuts. Well, you, oh, you want something that drives you real nuts, something that's really going to uh, rile you up. Let's talk about a little pandemic pandemonium, Mike. COVID is running rampant and it's still creating havoc across the college landscape here. So the biggest names that got canceled this week was number one Gonzaga and number two Baylor, which is a really a shame because what a game that would have been. And the reality is both of these teams should have taken a harder stance when they had the positive COVID uh, results and they should have gotten into quarantine a lot earlier.
2: So well, I know you want this to be a Seton Hall podcast only, but I mean, I'm a big college basketball fan. I think most people if they're into college basketball, we're going to set aside some time to watch that game or at least change the channel and kind of see what was going on. It, to me, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a look ahead to what might be in store for the rest of the season. We've seen everything possibly take place to try to get games to happen. You have these two specific programs that have basically shunned the rules to basically do their own thing, to play their games, to start the year. And they don't move ahead with this matchup. I think the PR nightmare of what's going on, not only, within the collegiate sports world, but what's going on with the rest of society is starting to put this black cloud over, is this the right thing to do? So the fact that these teams had any type of exposure again automatically is a 180 for how they're making the decision to move forward. And that concerns me. I really do think we need to go to this Bubbleville type setup. And you saw some of the stats coming out of Bubbleville that Andy Kass posted on Twitter. I mean, they had over 2,800 tests for over 1,000 people that were in the bubble during this two-week period, and they had only three positive tests, two that led to programs leaving before they even showed up in Stephen F. Austin and Maine, and then one game that got canceled uh, due to a positive onsite, which was NC State. That's the way that it needs to be run.
1: Yeah, they, I, don't know, I don't know how practical that is for long-term conference play, though, Mike. But like you said, what's most important to us is the Big East teams. And you know what? UConn just had to pause for a second time this year. Their Big East opener against St. John's has been postponed. Iowa State and DePaul, another Big East team, was canceled due to COVID-19 concerns within DePaul's program supposedly the Seton Hall game is still on for late next week. Um, you, got, you got teams playing their first
2: game of the season versus teams that have already played multiple games. Now, that, that, that might be our situation the Paul. But speaking of teams who haven't played their first game yet, we got Wagner coming up. <laughs> Wagner hasn't even played a game yet. I got to preview. How do I preview Wagner when they haven't even stepped on the court yet? What do you want? What do you want me? To hear? Oh, they're, they're led by Bashir Basin and, and the Seahawks are coming off of a 8-21 season that saw them to finish last next to last in the NEC. And they're predicted to finish eighth this year. Whoopee. They lost one guy at a graduation and Curtis Cobb who had 16 points and they bring back four seniors
1: does that do it for you do you, are, you? you, you like just alex not be, you are not being fair to our buddy donald copeland who was an assistant coach on that team mike
2: uh, if alex morales and his 13 and a half points per game from last year from manchester regional high school giving Chevar reynolds a challenge for the pride of manchester if he comes out and smokes us for a career high and we lose to wagner i'll eat my hat
1: that's just not fair mike that's not fair <laughs>
2: sorry man I'm a, but I'm yes the this late, should man. be
1: this should be another game that we beat the brakes off these guys and you know what this is where you want to see the progression of the team you want to see guys play better and maybe toward the end of the game you're going to see guys that you normally don't see maybe Dominguez stevens get a little bit of an extended run in this game maybe Jahari long gets a little bit of an extended okay. run
2: not now we're talking. Now we have the Wagner game as on your schedule as a developmental game right before you go into your first Big East matchup. I'm okay with that. But but it better be that. You can't come out against Wagner and get down by nine with three minutes to go in the first half, and then you've got to run your starters for the majority of the game. They, you should have your role players, your bench guys, your freshmen get into some meaningful minutes. Why can't a Dominguez Stevens come in and play when the game's fairly close? We, we only complain when we're up by 40 because that gets some real meaningful minutes at that point. I, I Just mix it in. Make this a true exhibition-type format by, like you said, blowing the doors off an inferior podium from the start. That happens. I'll be excited because that will be a true tune-up heading into that first... Big East game against DePaul. If if we play it, like you said.
1: And like you mentioned, later in the week, we're going to have our Big East opener against DePaul. We're going to go behind enemy lines with our friend Dan Stack, who's a writer for WeAreDePaul.com. And he was a visitor with us last year. He gave us some good information about DePaul. But we're going to wait a little bit before we have him on. Let's just make sure that that game's actually going to happen before we spend some time.
2: So so I mean I predicted potentially 4 and 0 a 3 and 1 and it kind of backfired to me but you know look looking ahead I mean Wagner's got to be a W right I mean we're going to talk to Dan and break it down but my gut's telling me the Paul hasn't played yet Maybe we're getting Bryce Aiken back for that game. We got some games under our belt. That should be a win. Do I throw out a 2-0 Seton Hall prediction for this week? Do I mush
1: him? I can't see why not, Mike. Like you, I mean, your your points are valid. Your logic is true. I mean, Wagner's not going to be a good team in the NEC. They're not going to be much of a challenge for us. Now, DePaul, DePaul had a heck of a recruiting class. But if I'm not mistaken, DePaul had a heck of a recruiting class last year and it didn't really turn into wins in the Big East and yes it is their first game they're not going to have a lot of cohesion going on they're not going to have their game legs underneath them yet so yes we should beat them handily
2: i think it's interesting we've kind of glossed over this a little bit last year when powell goes down with the injury against stony brook all the talk was about the injury all the post-game conversations when is the ankle going to heal is he going to be ready for the next game are you a little bit surprised that this year, relative to Bryce's injury, there really hasn't been a lot of talk about it? I mean, no, we should be, I, going to be able,
1: leading up to: is he going to play against the ball? Like, I, I, you- I don't find I don't find it surprising at all because he's got that big injury history. You know, Miles didn't have an injury history when he turned his ankle, so there was nothing to really, you know, compare it to. And Miles was Miles. I mean, that you can't compare the two guys as players, okay? No, but Bryce but isn't coming probably, in.
2: One was a knee injury for Bryce. I think the other was a more serious foot injury. Now we're talking about a rolled ankle, and now I, I don't know what what kind of issue he's having with the ankle. How big did it balloon? I'm not in the trainer's room. We say this every time. I don't have any inside knowledge, but. How often do you see a sprained ankle typically go beyond two weeks?
1: Okay, Let let me put it this way, though, Mike. Maybe this is because Shavar is such a popular player with the fans that people are like, okay, Bryce hasn't really played for us yet. It's not like Miles where he had three years of history with us this is a grand transfer that no one's really got an emotional connection to shavar on the other hand is the great story he's the walk-on who earned the scholarship who has now turned himself into the starting point guard through blood sweat and tears it's a great story i know the writers out there love writing it we've read it ad nauseum but maybe that's what it is mike
2: you, you have an issue with some of the, uh, the storylines after the Oregon game, basically saying, hey, this has nothing to do with Bryce Aiken coming back because Shavar played so great. You know, there's more issues with this team, and people are gonna now going to push the Aiken narrative as to a secondary story and make this about a bigger collective issue with the Pirates. I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of unknowns. There's still a lot of ifs. I just feel like that is the theme still a lot of what if and we're heading into week three and I don't
1: think we figured out much other than this team is going to be all over the map I actually feel real bad for the team at this point just from the fact that I am emotionally spent from this week Mike I don't know that I can handle four games in a week those guys now get to go home Then they got a day of practice and then right away Tuesday they've got another game. I don't care who they're playing, Wagner's not gonna be much of a competition, but that's now five games in eight days. And if you expand it further, you know, I mean it's just been a lot of games, very quick turnaround, you know, the guys are putting in effort, and we just hope that they can continue it.
2: All right, so at this point, I only think there's one one other thing we can say. Go Pirates. Go Big Blue. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other of your favorite listening platforms. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle at L Coast Pirates. We are also proud members of the What You Expect Network of Podcasts. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include Interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates.